Shalom, this is Alex Israel from Alon Shavut, and welcome to Tanakh's study. Uh, today we're going to study chapter 2, Perek Bet of Bereshit. Last time we looked at the six days of creation, and we saw the way that uh, God created an orderly world, a structured world, um, a world in which man is placed in a position of responsibility to take control over all um, that God has made. In this regard, man is B'Tselem Elohim in God's image. More than that, God looks at his creation and sees that it is Tov Ma'od. It is good. The world is described in very positive terms. And now we come to chapter 2, which begins in the following way. Vayichulu HaShamayim Vaharetz V'chol Tzva'am Vayichal Elohim V'yom Ashvim Alakto Asher Asa and the heavens and the earth, the first three days, the the second lot of three days, were finished. And on the seventh day, God completed all the work which he had made, he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because he had rested from all the work that he has created to do. Uh, when we look at this uh, paragraph, which opens chapter 2, we ask ourselves, does it belong to chapter 1 or to chapter 2? I think, uh, on the one hand, we might suggest that it doesn't belong with chapter 1. Every paragraph of chapter 1 had a very distinct structure. It began with Vayomer Elohim, and it ended with Vayier Vahivoker, and it was evening and it was morning. Moreover, God doesn't create anything on the seventh day. Moreover, God doesn't say, and it was good. In this regard, the seventh day is very, very different from the first six, and yet we are going to contend that Shabbat, the seventh day, is very much part of the first chapter. The primary reason is the name that is used to describe Hashem, to describe God. The name which is used is the name Elohim. Throughout chapter 1, the name of God is Elohim. Throughout chapter 2 and 3, the name that is used for God is Hashem Elohim. Yudke Vavke, followed by Elohim. If the name in these three verses is Elohim, we can assume that it's part of chapter 1. The truth is, I think it's pretty obvious. This day is not given a name, it's not called Shabbat, it's constantly called the seventh day. The number 7 is imprinted all over it. What do I mean? Three of the major phrases contain the phrase Yom Hashvi'i, the seventh day, and each of these phrases themselves have seven words. Vayichal Elohim b'yom hashvi'i malachto asher asach. Seven words with yom hashvi'i in the middle. Vayishpot b'yom hashvi'i b'kol malachto asher asach. Seven words with yom hashvi'i in the middle. Vayavarech Elohim et yom hashvi'i v'kadesh oto. Again, seven words with yom hashvi'i in the middle. And if this is the seventh day, it must relate to the six days which came before it. How does it relate to the six days which came before it? I think we might say that this, in many ways, is the pinnacle of creation. The natural world 
day one, matches day four, day two, matches day five, day three, matches day six. But this world, which is God's day, stands alone. God stands alone. And if all creation has been ascending, it ascends to this point. So, in a certain sense, this is giving a spiritual zenith, a spiritual a propulsion to the weak. Everything until this point is natural, but there is something beyond the natural, and that is God, the time when God reigns supreme, a day which is described as being not only a day of rest, but a day of sanctity, by Kadeshoto. The interesting thing with Shabbat, though, is who kept it? How does it manifest itself? And here's something quite fascinating. The next time we encounter these phrases in the Torah is in the Ten Commandments, where we see Zachorat Yom HaShabbat Lekadsho. The paragraph ends, Al Kain Beirach Adonai Et Yom HaShabbat Ve'ikachehu. The notion of sanctifying the day and blessing the day. Just like here we see um, that God And here's something ironic. God rests on the seventh day and sanctifies it so that thousands of years later we will be able to rest on the seventh day and sanctify it, imitating God. God here, so to speak, is creating sacred space which will only be appreciated when the Ten Commandments are given and when Am Yisrael come on the scene. We're going to move on from Shabbat to chapter 2, which begins in chapter 2, verse 4, uh, where we'll see a new name for God, a different name that we've seen before, and a new introduction. Here's the introduction. Eile toldot hashamayim v'aretz b'yubar'am. This is the story of heaven and earth in its creation on the day that Hashem Elohim made earth and heaven. What is the nature of this name that has been added to God? Yud Kevavke. What is it? And what is this idea of Beyom Asot Hashem Elohim Eretz We just spoke about six days or seven days. Now we talk about on the day that God made heaven and earth. As we read through this chapter and we're going to read through, please pay attention and think to yourselves how many things you can identify which are different to the way we described them in chapter 1. Verse 5 And all the plants of the field were not yet in the land. None of the vegetation had sprouted. Because there had been no rain. God had not made it rain. And there was no man to work the ground. Already we have a sense that man is there to work. But what is the role of the rain? Rashi says that there are no plants because there is no rain, and there is no rain because there is no man to pray for them. Why is Rashi introducing prayer here? Whichever way, we see there are no plants, we're waiting for man, and now a, a mist comes up from the from the, the earth and waters all of the face of the earth by Hashem and God takes this earth 
of the ground, fashioned it into man by Chaim. You can always almost imagine God taking this wet soil like clay and fashioning it in his hand into the human, breathes the breath of life into his nostrils, and man becomes a living being. Notice the intimacy of the description here. Notice even, even in the next verse, God plants a garden in Eden, in the east. He puts the man which he fashioned in this garden. It's almost as if he specially makes the garden just for Adam. Now man's in the garden, he has to eat. God sprouted beautiful trees. He cares about the aesthetics. And also the, the, the way they taste, they have to taste good. The tree of life is in the garden. At this stage, the tree of life is certainly not threatening. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We will be discussing that in our next Shi'or on chapter 3. It's almost as if God has fashioned this man, has taken this man and put him in a special garden he's made. And when he sees that man has certain needs, food needs, he makes beautiful trees, tasty fruit. And now, A river comes out from Eden in order to water the garden. And there it separates to four different rivers. The first one is called Pishon. It is the one which goes around the land of Chavilah, where the gold is. That gold is very good. There is the Bedilium, the Evan Ashohan. The second is called Gichon, which goes around Ethiopia. And the third is Chidekel, Tigris, which goes to Assyria. And the fourth is Euphrates. Eden is described, if you notice, all the water sources in this chapter are fresh water. The mist, which comes up from the soil, the rain, and now the rivers, as opposed to the seas we saw in chapter one. Fresh water, which is such an important commodity, especially in the Middle East, which is a very hot land, and this water is desperately needed. And it's described almost as Eden as being the source of all this goodness in the world. First, the rivers come in order to irrigate the garden, but now they irrigate the entire region. Uh, the, uh, Barbanel sees this as an expression of the bounty, how God has provided everything for Adam, everything for the garden. We will continue reading. Man is not here just to, to, to enjoy himself and to gain pleasure, but he comes to work and to, to serve the Ovda, Ula Shomra, and to preserve. Again, this is a far cry from what we saw before where man was told in chapter 1, Man was the king, suppress the world and conquer it. That was chapter 1. Now man is subservient. He is there to serve and preserve. He restricts um, Adam and says you can eat from all the trees. But one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat from. 
On the day you eat from it, you will die or you will become mortal. Again, we'll relate to this, please God, in our next shiur on chapter 3. Hashem Elohim says, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a partner, an ezer, a help, which will, who will go against him. In other words, here we have a beautiful paradigm of human relationships where our partners are on the one hand, an ezer, are a help, we are in sync with them, we flow together. On the other hand, there are connectors. There are significant differences. What is he going to make for man to be man's help me? He creates now all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens, and brought them to man. To see what he would call them. Indeed, man gave names to all of the animals and to all the beasts and to all the birds, but man did not find this partner for himself. Here we see something fascinating. A name is a definition. By, by investigating every, every animal to see whether this was the Ezer Knegdor, this was his partner, Adam names all of the animals, but none of them are suitable. What's God going to do? God sends Adam to sleep by Ishan, and he sleeps by He takes one of his salaot and closes the the um the skin He takes the tsela from man and makes it to woman and brings her to man. What is this sailor? Um, Christian theology and others say that it is Adam's rib, and maybe the removal of the rib allows a room for woman to become pregnant or something in that vein. However, maybe easier put is the explanation of Rashi, who notes that in Perak Aleph in chapter 1, when man and woman are created, it says, um, Man is created in God's image. Man has already been created, male and female. And therefore he takes the word tsela, not meaning a rib, but as it is in the Mishkan, where in the Mishkan it means the whole side of the Mishkan. In this imagination, originally man and woman are somehow attached, and God now separates man from woman and makes them into two separate beings. And this is fascinating because the minute Adam sees uh, um, he's this woman next to him. She's not called Chava yet. What does he do? Adam. He sees the woman and he says, She is the bones of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. This is poetry. Man is excited. I am the Ish. She will be the Isha. We match each other. Therefore, man will abandon his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife and they will be of one flesh. We uh, want to address the issues of this chapter and I'd like to focus on two main topics. The first is the disparities between chapter 1 and chapter 2 and this has been 
studied at great length, first in the Midrashim and in the commentaries, and of course modern scholarship has used it as a claim to say that there must be a different author to chapter 1 and chapter 2, what we call the documentary hypothesis. And I, I think that our tradition has a rich um, toolbox for dealing with the difference and the dissonance between chapter 1 and chapter 2. But first let's summarize a little bit. Notice chapter 1, uh, the name of God. The name of God in chapter 1 is Elohim. Chapter 2, Hashem Elohim. Um, how is man created? Chapter 1, in the image of God. Chapter 2, earth from the ground and God's breath. Maybe you'll say it doesn't make a huge difference, but I think it is quite different. One of the most interesting things is that in chapter 1, Adam comes first. Man comes first and only after, only after man. Then all the plants are created and all the animals are created to find a partner for man. Whereas in chapter, that's in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, everything was hierarchical. We had first the vegetation, then the animal kingdom, and only later man. It's all the opposite way round in chapter 2. Man first, then the vegetation, and then the animals. What do we make of that difference? And how about the creation of woman in chapter 1? Man and woman created together. Here, man is lonely. He needs to find a helpmeet. And only afterwards, woman is created. I'll say one last thing, which is the literary style of the chapter 1 is so structured. Chapter 2, a flowing narrative. They really do seem so different. How are we going to relate to them? I think the place to start is the names of God. Chapter 1, Elohim. What is Elohim? Elohim simply means power. Later on in Sefer Bereshit, we hear Lavan say, Do I have the power? El means a power. It doesn't necessarily refer to our God. It refers to any power, forces of nature. And of course, we talk about Who is like you, God, amongst the gods? Of course, those are Elim. It means amongst the forces of nature. And when we call God not just El, but Elohim in the plural, we're saying that God is the totality of all natural forces. By the way, uh, oh, sorry, so that's Elohim. Yudke Vavke relates to the essence of being. I'll say something else that Elohim uh, is like a generic name, God. Yudke Vavke is like God's personal name. Uh, let me explain. Elohim is sometimes called Ha Elohim. Anything you can say Ha, the, that means that it is something generic, like Ha'ir, Ha'sadeh, the field, the, 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 the city, Ha'elohim. But you can never say the Chaim, the Yaakov. Somebody's personal name doesn't get a Ha, doesn't get a the before it. Yudke Vavke is God's personal name. Elohim describes God. And this leads to a sense that Elohim is a word for distance. It's a word which expresses God's distance and the God in his state of power. Um, the rabbis say that God, in the name of Elohim, represents din, judgment. Why? Because this is the atmosphere of chapter 1. Everything is hierarchical. Everything 
takes its place. Place in a hierarchy. Um, the lion is always going to eat the antelope. The different animals prey on each other. That is the nature of the world. God creates his world. His primary role is a creator setting up the rules of nature. He hands the world over to Adam. And off he goes. That's the world of Din. What about Rachamim? You know, let me say a little difference between Din, judgment, and Rachamim. Din goes according to the rules. Imagine somebody has done a crime. He will come into court and he will the, 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 the judge will look in his rule book and say, Okay, I pronounce your sentence. Five years in jail. But then, what is Rachamim? Rachamim is when the judge looks at the man and he sees he's crying. And he's crying because there's a little girl behind him and that girl is his daughter. And he realizes that if he sends the man away for five years in jail, for five years he won't see his daughter grow up. He won't go to her birthday parties. He sees the man's crying and he says, OK, you know what? If you behave well, I'll commute your sentence. But the law book said five years. What, why are you going to give a third off for good behavior? Why are you going to give him parole? Why? Because there is a human connection. Chapter 1, the world is created in a hierarchical manner, a world of rules. God is the big creator. God is what we would call transcendent. Everything is in its order. First the vegetation, then the animals, then human at the top. Chapter 2 is totally different. Chapter 2 is human-centric. Um, God, in his name, Hashem Elohim, Midat HaRachamim, here, just like I said before with Rachamim, Rachamim means looking at the person, not looking at the rules. God is concerned with Adam. God is concerned with Adam to such a point that he fashions him out of, uh, almost like out of clay, breathes his own breath, God's breath, to make Adam into a living being, mouth to mouth. How intimate could that be? Then he plants the garden for Adam. He makes the animals for Adam. And when none of this works, he says, oh, Adam, you're lonely. And when Adam doesn't find any, any relief, he creates woman for Adam. So we see a great sense of responsiveness in God, a great sense of intimacy here in this chapter. It's really a remarkable dynamic, which is very, very different to chapter one. The relationship between man and woman is also different. In chapter 1, and this is something that Rabbi Soloveitchik talks about in The Lonely Man of Faith, man and woman are created together. If we take chapter 1, which Rabbi Soloveitchik calls technological man, majestic man, chapter 1, man's role is to conquer the world. In that environment, man and woman can both work at NASA, they can work in their laboratory to cure cancer, they can work at computer terminals in their uh, venture capital company side by side. But man and woman never talk to one another in chapter one. They never communicate. In chapter one, man and woman are there to conquer the world. But what are they for in chapter two? Man here in chapter two is described as lonely. What does that mean? Man is searching for meaning. He asks not how do things work, but why am I here? What is my life for? And he's looking for a relationship. In that regard, it's fascinating that he does communicate with woman and in order to build a relationship, the only way he does that is by taking, giving something up of himself. Whenever we build human relationships, 
we have to make space for the person who is opposite us. Man makes space for woman. And therefore, when they have a real relationship, he bursts into song when he meets her. Why is creation described, or why is the world described, with two such different stories? Because sometimes God is a distant creator who has created some cruel rules of the world and doesn't seem close by at all. And at other times, God is God is right by us, close. Sometimes human relationships between men and women are technical, are technological, are a work relationship where there isn't any intimacy to be expected or welcomed. But sometimes, chapter 2, people are looking for companionship. From one perspective, man is just another creature like all other creatures, chapter 1. But from another perspective, man is the pinnacle of the universe. Man is there to seek his meaning. And the man-God relationship is warm and intimate. We could never have described our world without giving two different images, two different dynamics, two different sets and definitions in order to explain this. And therefore, we give two completely different images and the world oscillates between the two. Um, almost like a, an image where I, I, I am trying to create something in a complex way and I have to describe it from this vantage point and that vantage point in order to get the holistic image. The relationship of God to the world and God to man and man to God is so complicated that it needs two completely separate images. But the sum of the parts is the world is sometimes like this and sometimes like that. This is my best explanation. It follows the approach of Rav Breuer, Rav Mordechai Breuer, Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik to explain the great disparity between chapter 1 and chapter 2. One is God-centric, one is human-centric. One God is distant, one God is close. And I think what we want to do now is move to the end of the chapter and talk a little bit about the family. Because if chapter 1 is capped with Shabbat, chapter 2 is capped with the family. And I'd like to relate to a comment by Rav Kook in Shmodak Vatsim, where Rav Kook is relating to the theory of evolution. Many people look at the theory of evolution, and uh, we all know that scientists think that man evolved from apes, from more primitive life forms. Is that something which contradicts our Jewish way of thinking? Rav Kook says that there is no reason why we cannot believe in this. Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Kuk, the great first chief rabbi of Israel, a mystic and a tremendous scholar, was fully committed to Torah, to Torah Nenigla, the revealed Torah, the Nistar, the Kabbalistic Torah. And he looked at this account that we have in Bereshit, and he said, of course, we don't believe in the theory of evolution in the sense that God didn't power it. Maybe God powered the whole process. But what do we want to say here? And Rav Kuk says something fascinating. He says, we don't know where human beings came from when it says that God created human beings. Who knows? We could have come from earth and breath, but that doesn't seem to match our biology. But maybe when it says and God created man, maybe it was through the process of um, survival of the fittest and through the process of an evolutionary science. But he says, the question isn't how we got it. The question is where we pick up the story. 
Where do we pick up the story, says Rav Kook? We pick up the story when man is capable of moral and ethical responsibility. What does God do in the first chapter? He puts him in the in the in the garden, law of Da'ul Shamra to work and preserve, and he gives an instruction. You can eat this, you can't eat that. Man is capable of moral responsibility. In chapter one, God was told man to control the land, to look after the land. Man is capable of instruction, he's capable of moral reasoning, he's responsible. Second point. At this point where we take up the story, humankind has evolved to a point where we aren't animals anymore who live in a pack. What do we see? The first story, chapter 2, is the notion of man meeting woman and creating a nuclear family, as it says at the end of the chapter. Man will leave his father, leave his mother, cleave to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. The likelihood is that that one flesh is the children that they will create together. The idea that the nuclear family, that a family unit stays together, that a man and woman are loyal to one another, the creation of the family. Says Rav Cook, I don't care how human beings came into the world. The, t- the Torah explains us many, many moral features in chapter 1 of what the world needs to be. But the question is, the Torah begins from a point where humanity has evolved to where? To the point that, number one, we are capable of having moral and ethical reasoning, of being commanded by God, of having a spiritual sensitivity about us. Look at the way that Adam talks in poetry. We're talking about a, a higher being. We're talking about a being which knows that it is not part of the animal kingdom. God brought all the animals to man and they were not suitable. And what does he do? He names them with language. He gives them names. Animals don't call each other names. Human beings call names. So humankind now sees itself separate from the animals, capable of moral reasoning and the creation of the family. These are the critical building blocks which have, which, whereby humankind can begin its journey. And therefore, the notion that chapter 2, before we start with chapter 3, which deals with the morality and whether we know how to listen to God's uh, command and the temptation of the snake, the development of knowledge, Tob and Ra, before we get to that, the stage is set. I'll try and summarize what we did today. We spoke first about Shabbat, and then we spoke about the dissonance between chapter 1 and 2. We described the way that chapter 1 and 2 are completely different, because God wanted to give us two different chapters, which express a completely different interhuman dynamic, an inter- a different man-God dynamic, a different description and definition of God. Is one correct, or is two correct? Even though they contradict, they are both correct. Our relationship with God is sometime a relationship of Elohim, and sometimes of Yudkei Sometimes Zachar and Akei man and woman, are equal. And sometimes man and woman look for a relationship, they look for their difference, they fall in love, like Adam 1, and Adam two, like uh, Adam, uh, like Ish Isha in our chapter. And lastly, we spoke about the idea that this chapter sets the stage for man as a morally um, responsible being, 
man as very, very distinct from the animals and the creation of the family. Thank you for listening. In our next class, we will look at chapter 3.